Graphic Nature acknowledges the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. We also extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents them. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. Will be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers, and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Paul Mason, comics creator, educator. What, what don't you do? You do everything. Uh, <laughs> I keep busy. Yeah, I certainly do. I don't <laughs> sleep much. No, that's a lot. I've been working on that. On sleeping? I've been working on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on sleeping, yeah, I'm, yes. I'm yeah. surprised you can find the time, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, pacing. It's uh, it, it got to the stage there for a little while where it was getting a little bit silly and uh, non-functioning during the day. So I've had to try and, you know, I, I mean, a combination of that and no longer being on strict strict deadlines kind of helps to curb that uh problem but yeah i'm I'm dialing back it's not something you i i think you should wear as a badge of honor particularly now in a post-covid world and you're trying like everyone's trying to well smart people are trying to stay relatively healthy you know you kind of need that few hours to function and uh curb off infections and that sort of thing so amen to that amen to that uh i know from personal experience that i have not taken into account any of that and uh (laughs) And uh, it, it, it would seem that uh, my uh, drug of choice is not sleeping and trying to do as much as possible and try and just, you know, I think it's just a, the part of the course of just trying to keep, you know, uh, from from going off the deep end, really. It, it is. Uh, uh, and I find that, uh, you know, for a little while it's, it's, it's okay. You think you're sort of getting ahead of things, but I find in the long run it doesn't seem as sustainable for brain and body, you know, trying to function and, and get tasks done, you, 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 you think that you're catching up, but relatively you're probably stretching out the hours of uh, functionality. That's, that's, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I've discovered. I remember going in a couple of t- – the last time I was able to go in tournaments, which was a few years ago now, and I'd be like writing lectures minutes before stepping into the ring and uh, – and what, what's this for? Just you know, so people know. Taekwondo. So yeah, yeah. And I'd only had a couple of hours function the night before, like to sleep, and then getting into the ring. And after a while, you just you, you can't. Uh, you know, I'm fighting guys that are a decade younger than I am, and maybe 20 kilos lighter in some of the open black belt divisions. And it's just 
they're running rings around you. You have to, you just have to punch them harder to try to get through <laughs> to the ramp. But it's not sustainable after a while. You just think, fuck, I'm just, I'm just ruining myself. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's, uh, you don't realize how much it's important. So I try to, it's a lecture that I give to students essentially. I, I don't mean this to turn into a podcast on sleep no. motivation. So. Oh, look, I, I don't know how many of the episodes you've heard. I know you do listen from time to time, but we, we sometimes get off topic. If you can, please list all the the comics-related disciplines that you that you employ before we get into how right. everything started. So are we talking like... Like your education uh, as well as the stuff you've done. So like, you know, there's concept and design and animation, oh, um, right. all, all that stuff. Okay. Just, you know, you don't need to go into detail, just no, what you actually okay. do do. So I, I've i done a couple of uni degrees. I did... Uh, <laughs> I laugh at it because my first uni degree was a, a Bachelor of Arts. It was a fine arts major and a minor in political theory. Uh, wow. And the reason, <laughs> it's so dumb. The reason why that happened was when I was in year 12, you know, we have a careers advisor at our school, and I've always wanted to be a cartoonist, you know, and com- like comics and animation since I was a kid. So yeah. I talked to the careers advisor, and he's like, well, they don't really do courses or anything like that. It looks like he might have just flicked through the white pages. I don't know the extent of his his research. And yeah. so don't don't even bother applying for like a, a university rank. You know how you got to, depending on what state you're in, you've got a number that you've got to apply for when you go through and do the like in New South Wales it was a HSC. So I'm like, okay. And then meanwhile, I, I, I ducked year 12. I, um, I did, I was really good at the, you know, economics, business studies, you know, visual arts, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. I got, you know, math. All, uh, all related, yeah, all yeah, related. So <laughs> I, I, I ducked year 12 and part of getting the, the high, high marks was a small stipend sort of scholarship to the local university in Newcastle. They kind mm-hmm. of knew I was on track to get this. And my, obviously my parents were pleased that I got this, but then discovered, oh, he hasn't applied for any uh, uni courses or the number to get into uni uh, because you told him he didn't have to or he didn't, you know, not not to. So oh, shit. My, my mother's uh, an expert, Karen. Uh, <laughs> you know, <I> <laughs> do- she and I had a very tough go when I was growing up. So she doesn't take any bullshit from anybody. Great. So she you know, got on a horn and, and, and fought and I got into a six months of a, a Bachelor of Applied IT because it was the only sort of course that was allowing me to go into university at the time. And one of the subjects I was able to pick was a digital imaging course, which kind of bridged to the fine arts degree. Right. So that was like early years of Photoshop. Uh, we're talking, you know, two, two decades ago. Which, uh, which version was it? Point two? Uh, oh, oh, look, sorry, two point oh, nine. I think Fred Flintstone's signature was on it. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going. I, I know. I, I know that era very well. It was yeah. nine. I when I started learning stuff on Photoshop, it would have been nineteen ninety three, two, ninety two, ninety three. Computers existed. So. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I can tell you that I can tell you just very quickly because I feel like bragging at the moment. I did a I did one of those bridging uh, arts courses between high school. Oh, sorry, I, uh, 
I went to high school. Yeah. Out of high school, I went to uni reluctantly. The following, I dropped out of that, and the following year, I did one of those bridging uh, arts courses mm-hmm. that you know would you know build up your folio and stuff like that. And That's- in in the interim. I was working for my for my brother-in-law, and he had he had a business uh, making advertisements. So pretty much like the Yellow Pages, it was like a local directory. Mm-hmm. And I had been using Photoshop and Illustrator and and all those programs back then, yeah. right? And so when I get to the uh, when I get to the the Folio course, yeah. where you know we're using gouache and um, pens and inks and Copic yeah. markers and all this other kind of crazy shit. I just and I remember I was such an asshole then, and I was turning around. I was turning around to the well, then now same thing. I, I remember turning around to some of the lecturers uh, or the the tutors in in that course, and just basically saying, "Why am I spending four hours painting this stupid square using gouache when I can do this in five minutes on Illustrator?" And and throughout that year, as it turned out, was when they started they. You know, they, they had a computer room that had like five computers or five Macs. I can't remember what kind of Mac it was, but they were so shit uh, right. compared to today's standards. And I was teaching half the class how to use Photoshop <laughs> uh, along with the tutor because it was still yeah. so new. No, I know that feeling. Uh, yeah, no, so, so I, I, I did Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, 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 it's great because it, remi- it reminded me of the first my first year of uni when I was doing uh, my first year of my the animation degree. And one of the drawing first year drawing subjects, uh, the lecturer allowed me to teach one class because I'd had a bit of experience doing caricature work um, for a business in Sydney. They used to send me to different functions and in the metropolitan sort of area. So I taught one lesson and uh, I think he got a bit shitty with me because then the the student feedback at the end of the course was, (laughs) well, that that one class was (laughs) – anyway – well, but, that must that yeah, must have maybe. sucked for them. Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I work for them now, so I guess that kind of all swings aroundabouts. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, that first course I did that six months of applied IT, and I couldn't care less about building computers. And but you know, it gave me a little bit of a, a, a an appreciation, stepping stone for all that stuff. And then I went into the fine arts, but uh, because I could pick certain theory subjects, I wasn't a fan of art theory. It, it used to frustrate me where you know, if they don't know the history of something it's all about sort of semiotics and saying oh what do you think the artist was thinking when they used that red and i would be like well i don't know they, they ran out of blue like it's yeah. just <laughs> the i guess that's why like my research in my doctorate was all about process and and getting it from the horse's mouth so to speak rather than yeah. going off oh this is what i think the person did or this is what it's like well why don't you go find out so i'm pretty sure i've said this on on the podcast before but that part of of art like all the art theory and all that stuff used to drive me insane me too really the only movement i really loved was art nouveau that was the only one that i really really loved because it was it just blew my mind but everything else you know particularly when they're talking about histories and stuff just bore me to tears like i don't care what you think <laughs> you know and and you know even when it got to cubism and shit like that oh, i used to drive me Man, nuts I, I like i loved i love looking at those classical renaissance you know because it seems to me like that's the moment where perspective composition all those elements came together for those artists and just exploded they studied their craft they studied the human form anatomy all that sort of stuff yeah yeah i walk into a museum and, and it'll be like a <laughs> 20 foot poster that's red 
You know what I mean? With a spot on it. And like I'd be like dead tired from like, you know, a tough sort of kid phantom deadline. I've been working around the clock for months, hours, you know, weeks, putting all this effort in. And I look at one of those things that costs like, uh, you know, $20 million, <laughs> one of these paintings will go for, and you go, an hour and a half tops, I think. I could just kick a paint bucket over and go, <laughs> this is, um, you know, this is the, the battle of blah, 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 represented by, you yeah. know, Uncle Ford in the, 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 you know, Chimerian Wars. And here's the, uh, the, bl- the, the red represents the people amassing it's like (laughs) seriously i I think we're we're just i you know we're gonna agree a lot over this kind of stuff (laughs) it's just it 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 really really boggles my mind and and i don't i don't understand where it comes from like you know it's that it for me i'm the same i'm exactly the same when i look at any kind of postmodernist art or modern art i i just I, i can't appreciate it the way that you know these boffins just look at it and go, "Wow, that's really deep." It's like, no, it's fucking not. It's a white square inside a white square. That's not deep. That's a lazy artist. When I, um, when I was doing this fine art course, we went on an excursion to Sydney uh, and went to uh, Goma, the Goma down there gallery. Mm, yep. They had this exhibition on, and I'm walking around. They had one thing, and it was like it was done like a protest, but it was all action figures, and all I can think of was. I had those He-Man when I was little. Like it was just like, you know. and then the next one was we go into this room, my friend and I, and it was a video installation. And you know how they they play them on a loop with a bit of a break in between. So we sit in the front row and we're sitting there. And I don't even know what we were talking about. We were just chatting about something mundane for a while. And a couple of other people came in afterwards and sat in the back row. And we must have been talking for another three or four minutes. And then I stopped and went is this thing going to start soon or something? And the people behind us went, oh, oh, you're not the exhibition. So that's that's modern art in a nutshell. Jesus. <laughs> you can just, my uh, Lord. The worst one was, and I know we're getting way off topic here. I went that's to right. the, I took my, uh, uh, once a year I take my um, my art direction students to the, the museum and the gallery to, to see the different exhibitions that are on, right? And right. hopefully there's always something good on to get, you know, go in there, get some drawing sketches, fundamentals. Like this year was motorcycles, so I had them studying, you know, motorcycles, drawing motorcycles sketching mm-hmm. you know sketching people standing around looking at motorcycles etc etc because students hate drawing anything other than characters so get yeah. them to draw something mechanical and the previous years i think it was Patri- patricia panini that does the hyper real the the creature stuff that you know if you ever see her work you just have to google it it's sort of it uh, sounds familiar yes yeah, so yeah it's but kind of like come that, to mind, um, you know, sculptures of human-animal hybrids and um, creepy sort of things that look like elements of anatomy but made into landscapes, and it's very surreal and mm-hmm. very bizarre. There's a room that you go into that's like a playing screens of just orifices moving around, and you're yeah, like, right. I'm not going in that room. You know, you, you walk into another room and there'll be like a, a an olden day sort of uh, bed with a small realistic child on the bed and she'll be patting this kind of sloth man creature and you're like, yeah, this is great, but what's the peacock for? You know, you just go. Yeah, right. Now, now I know who you're talking about. So we're yep, in this yep, room yep. and there's all these sort of giant lifelike statues and hairy creatures and I'm there and I'm wearing like, you know, nice collared shirt. I'm uni, right? I'm, yep, I'm right. Yep. Sure. I got the jeans, the 
the nice sort of smart wanker hat, you know, <laughs> I'm standing there looking at an image like like this, and then I move, and about three school children behind me screamed, thinking that I was <laughs> seriously the thing next to me looks like fucking Harry and the Henderson, <laughs> and, and you look at me and, and thought I was one of the sculptors. I'm like, I'm just going to go wait outside and cry quietly for a while, and you guys, when I finish, you can all come out and we'll uh, go back to the uni. That's harsh. That's That's my nut for me, man. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, I I, I suppose just just, uh, uh, finally on on art in general, I think from a young age and and maybe it's my predilection for comics and and the way that – you know the artists that I saw in the in the in the late eighties and the early nineties, and that drew me in. And so maybe maybe I've got blinders at the moment because anything that doesn't you know doesn't seem to require much work in the sense you know from the artist, I, I've never been able to appreciate because I look at it and go, "Where's the work? Yeah. Like you haven't shown me, you know, because because as far as I'm concerned." You know, anybody can paint a 20 by 20 foot canvas red and then say and attribute it to fucking anything. Yeah. Right. I, and, and I get that the intention might have been something rather, but it's so ambiguous that I just look at it and go, that's, you're full of shit. Yeah. There's a you're full of like, shit. Takes, takes, it, it, it really has to be, there really has to be something there in a sense of, like I understand if you've studied for years uh, and honed your craft and gone through a process to a point where it's not about how long it took you to make that thing, but it's knowing where to place the elements in order to make that thing, you know, coming from your experience. I can, I can appreciate that to some degree, but there is, um, there is certain things and, and certain movements. As I said, I'm on 100% agreeance with you where you look at something and go – no, I, I, I think I'm not <laughs> going to pass. <laughs> I look at the artistry in, in, in you know, the, the major comic companies putting out all these marquettes and, and uh, you know, like Bowen Designs and uh, Sideshow Collectibles. And, and, like, I look at the, the artistry of some of those statues and it pains me that, that I don't have money to buy them and to enjoy them. I've got a few of them, but they were always still uh, financially out of my out of my um, out of my range, and I just I would marvel at them because they would just look amazing, and it's just like was well, someone fashioned that with their hands initially, at least. I mean, yeah, sure they had machines that created a thousand of them, but but you know to sculpt something initially, you know, and that's where and you so, and I have that, that appreciation of comics, understanding that there is a lot of. Um, there's a lot of skill and craft that has to go into, I mean, you know, multifaceted skills. It's not just a case of I can draw an illustration well. It's like, yeah, I don't care how well you can draw if, you know, the, the art itself is not in the service of narrative in some way, shape or form on the page. Yeah. So, that, that I, mean, I mean, that's – and that's – I guess that goes back to the old um, Russ Heath story of, um, you know, seeing his work appropriated by, what, Roy Lichtenstein or however you say oh, it, yep, 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 yep. earning all this money and, and acclaim of work that, you know, he would have had to have done the, the hard yards and legwork in order to conjure that thing out of nowhere and get paid a pittance for it. So, you know, it's always interesting when you go back in the, the, that history of, um, the you know, American comics and look at those different generations and not 
knowing what they were getting into or wanting to do something more with their craft and never having that opportunity to do that. But, you know, still because it's a job and there's that art meets commercialization, have that, have that professionalism to put out something that still makes us sort of wow when we look at it, you know. So it's just interesting. Yeah, I, I, I've I've said it often that it, it astounds me that you know just just what's happened in comics with with art and 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 the way that it's it's always been looked down upon and and even by people in in the industry like you know 50 years ago 60 70 years ago you know that they, they it was never it was always a means it was never a it was never a thing it was to never pretend, something to cover uh, you know if someone asked them at a party like what they did for a living and they'd be embarrassed <laughs> to, to mention it or they'd look down upon i mean ultimately like stan lee's the ultimate example of it given that it's not his real name he was saving yeah. his real name to become a novelist. That's it, right. It's yeah. crazy. But and then on the other side, when you look at what skill sets you you have to know in order to pull it off, you know, it's just if if the world was a meritocracy, it's like you'd have more of an appreciation of those. You know, when you sit there and watch the Marvel movies and and the key groups listed before the the people that had created the stories in the first place. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. <laughs> it's. Well, it's interesting because I suppose it it also comes down to where in the world you are. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I have, I don't, I have very little knowledge of the Japanese culture, but what I do understand is that comics still fare quite large, yep. uh, largely in in their society. You know, from young to to you know age old citizens are, are reading and looking and and checking all these comics out, and it's not necessarily looked down upon. And also, you know, the the way that their art is looked upon. You know the way that you know their their general sense of of let's say their postmodern art versus you know all the the way that you know and and even including like their graphic design and the way that they that all kind of meshes into their society versus the way that we look at it in in let's say you know for lack of a better term Western worlds and the way that we look at comics versus um, art versus film versus literature. Yeah, no, it's you know? true. It's There's just, definitely a. a a cultural connection there i mean i think part of it too you look at the traditional japanese art and i'm not i'm not stating myself an expert here but it was one of the things i remember even as a kid when we had to sort of pick art movements or areas to look at and i was always drawn to those traditional ink drawings i think there's definitely a lot of the i guess the dna of that exists in the modern say manga artists creating that work you know there's, there's a correlation of visuals from that classical japanese storytelling and tapestries and the, the ink work that the, and block work that they were doing there and how that looks when you look at the, you know, the comic art that they're doing um, as opposed to, say, you know, here, which there, there is no culture, I suppose, or, or, you know, I guess the perfect example of what I'm trying to sort of communicate by fumbling through my, my words and my brain here is, um, you know, I, I talk to, uh, f you know, my father's or my father's friends or, or you know, my, my mother's uh, ex-boss who was a farmer. And when he was a kid, you'd say, like, he's only maybe two hours out of Brisbane, so two hours out of a city hub. And you say, like, what did you do as a kid? And it's like, you know, you get up early, you tend to the farm, you go to school, you go to footy training, you come home, you do the chores, you go to bed and it's rinse and repeat. And there's no real culture of comic reading or processing of that material, you know, within those 
communities and, and spread yep. across say Australia yep. and that sort of thing as opposed to when you, you see when, when comics were sort of coming into being in, in you know places like New York and, and what have you overseas like bigger populations um, a little bit more metropolitan I would say in, in some of those yep. big hubs the material had the opportunity to kind of foster and build in, in a more of a cultural um, I guess digestion of that sense so uh, you know so I think I think you're right like part of it is that being around it and being familiar with it it's going to sort of take form or hold or still somewhat hold its ground to the average person as opposed yeah. to say here who everybody's you know you ask a kid in, in one of my classes and maybe they're digesting comics via the web and it's whatever they can get for free and you yeah. ask an yeah. adult you know what they're reading and maybe they have a passing knowledge of the phantom still and that's that's mainly it from their sort of comic reading experience but other than that it's a it's a kid's thing like uh, it, it still astounds me that i still see it in in news agents it's still there and like <laughs> and and growing like you know even when i worked in a comic shop we would get phantom and people would buy it and like personally like i've got nothing against the phantom in fact Fan the phantom was one of the first superheroes i actually read yeah me too but it yeah. But it was never like it never. We had no connection. Yeah, I had I had no. It didn't resonate with me, and I've I'm still surprised that the character itself has got such a huge fan base. It it boggles my mind, and, and not necessarily from a from a negative perspective. It's just it's like wow. We can we can get to that. Awesome, awesome. Uh, how about we finish up where where you went from uni? Best <laughs> question. Shit. All right. Um. <laughs> sorry, man. No, uh, that's all right. Yeah, all good. So I. I I finished that degree. Uh, I spent about a year and a half or two years working sort of freelance. I, I still had a – I was thinking about it the other day. Um, I've never worked – like I haven't – I've never done something singular. I've always got like two or three things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Just, so I was – while I was at uni, I was working in a fitness centres. And, and then when I was out of uni, I was, you know, working in the fitness centre plus, you know – I had a Taekwondo school for a little while there, uh, freelance cartooning on the weekends, doing uh, going around doing events and that sort of thing. And I remember, I remember very distinctly my mum one night saying, "Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, because I was applying for jobs and and I just wasn't getting anywhere, like graphic design jobs, and I was always considered too young or inexperienced, and you know, I wasn't getting the opportunity. So I applied for this Bachelor of Animation, and at the time they were taking portfolios, so I submitted my portfolio, got accepted, and then uh, packed the car and drove in a state to go and study animation. So I did wow. that. Uh, that was uh, 2006. So I did that, finished that in 2009. On a whim, decided to do my honours year, which allows you to do like an extra year and you you find your own research topic. So I yeah. looked at comics. I was, uh, I wanted to, uh, I basically looked at like Stanley and Jack Kirby's work in the 1960s. I was only fairly familiar with it through reading over the years and yep. uh, wanted to kind of uh, get into the formula or get into what, what made those two dudes tick or three dudes if you include Steve Dicko in the conversation. So yep. when I finished that. Jeez, it would have been hard to find some of the information back then. Like now, it's it's everywhere. it's everywhere. Back then, it wasn't everywhere. I I, I was lucky. I I you know started. I had a number of books. Um, you know, dug into library, dug into some journal articles. When I started doing the doctorate and I started going overseas to like San Diego Comic Con, so I could go straight to the publishers and pick up all the 
all the volumes of the Jack Kirby collectors with all those old interviews and also I got um, pretty deep into it. That was when I ended up doing the doctorate. And the only reason I did that was because at the time I was working at David Jones first as a sales assistant and then as a loss prevention officer and went into security. So I um, was sitting in the car park (laughs) one day after doing the honors course. I was 10 minutes late for work, but I was in no rush. Because uh, I hated that job with a passion, and I got a phone call from the head of the union. He's like, "You did really well on your honours. Uh, you get a, a like another stipend, a couple of grand. But provided that you're studying next year, what what did you have in mind?" And I looked to the bars oh. like left and right, and the entrance to work, and I'm like, uh, "I don't know. I'll come in Monday and talk to you." And he basically laid out like what I could do: um, masters, DVA, PhD. You can pick whatever you like. What do you want to do? And at the time, oh, wow. PhDs didn't allow for studio work. It was all theory-based. Um, the DVA was the doctorate of, of visual arts. Uh, it allowed a studio component as well as a theory component. And he said to me, look, if you ever want to teach, the DVA will allow you to teach. The master's doesn't, you know, or if you want to go and do the PhD, you can. And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to try comics as a career. I wouldn't mind. You know, they're not going to care about the thesis, you know, like say I can see the product. So I'm like, well, I'm going to use this opportunity in studio work to, you know, create something and carry it through and see how it goes. So that was 2010 when I started that. Well, so, so it went, so you went from honors. Yep. To the DVA. Yeah. I thought you had to do like, you, you, you do your honours, then your masters, then your doctorate, then your blah, blah, blah. Or is that a different, well, like, I is think, that a I different? I think from what they're saying, the, the marks from my honours was, was so high that I had the, the golden ticket. I was Charlie. So ah. I could have gone straight to the PhD if I wanted to sort of just sit around and talk about what I wanted to do, but I wanted to actually do the thing, you know. So That's frustratingly, great. not that it matters, it's a doctor, it's a doctorate, but a year and a half after my confirmation, they said to me, they were flicking through the, my trade paperback that I'd produced, you know, the halfway mark. I'd done like four issues of The Soldier or whatever, three or four issues. And the guy goes, yeah. this is secretary of the school, goes, you know, you should upgrade to your, your PhD from your, your – I said, well, I can't. I, I, you can't do studio component. And they're like, oh, they just changed the rules. You can. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's do that. And then um, my supervisor was like, no, you have to do that at confirmation. I'm like, well, that was a year and a half ago when that rule didn't exist. So, well, whatever. I'm not, I wasn't planning on going overseas to teach or whatever. You know, I'm getting the doctorate. It's fine. I'm going to see where I go from with this work. So, yeah. So that was basically it going one, two, three, and then done. So, and now you do, now you do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I started teaching. about two years into my doctorate, I got a, a visual story class um, and I helped sort of rewrite that course. You know, whoever was teaching it previously was a bit of a, a slapdash, very sort of bare yeah. bones aspects. There were things in there that I remembered from doing my course that are, you know, I, I felt like there was a lot of stuff that I learned through my honors and my doctorate that was far more valuable in visual storytelling and, you know, and, yep. and storyboarding pre-production that, that I wished that I had gone through when I did my undergraduate so it was essentially just writing that back into the course and allowing students to learn to think visually and tell stories without relying on on, you know just dialogue 
or um, straightforward um, visual narrative. So, yeah, so I guess that was that education in a nutshell. And as I was going through the doctorate, the closer I was to completion, the more classes that I was sort of given responsibility for. So art direction, pre-production, did a bit of comics at the time and and I'd bring in some more of the sort of the commercial or professional considerations of producing, not just like, you know, here's a pile of trash. See if you can make this into characters and go from there. You know? How's that going to help someone hit a deadline? You know, so yeah. after doing the doctorate, I was able to then pitch a comics course as well, which is like a three or four week intensive. So we've been doing that for a few years now as well. So I don't know. I, I, I enjoy that stuff. It, it helps. It all helps pay the bills and reinforce reinforces whatever I'm going through with uh the kids to my own sort of practices as well. Um, But then I get to see a lot of of talented, you know, diverse students create comics and animation and yeah, it can be in the sort of the the passenger seat and um, give my two cents as they go through and produce stuff. So it's always, it's always very rewarding to then see that work at the end of the year. I can imagine, I can imagine just seeing just the, the wealth of ideas that you would be seeing that would that you would go, wow, that's, you know, just, just seeing that stuff can be enough to, to spur you on or, or to even just confirm what you already know is that, you know, you're in the yeah, place that it, you want to be. It's fun. It's, 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 you know, it's a challenge. Like you, you, you look at stuff in the American industry and the, and the hashtag me too stuff that comes up and you look around at a class where you have a very diverse class, consistently three quarters or more of the class are uh, uh, either identifies female or, or non-binary um, or they're transitioning it's a very confusing time for a lot of kids and you just think i hope that you know th- hopefully these kids are, are going to be sort of at the forefront of what they're doing once they leave and, it, and it's always really nice to see you know kids go on and, and they're we've got quite a few of ex-students that are now like either art directors or animators or, or layout artists or background artists or say bluey or um any Oh, just one of the best things to come out of Queensland in, <laughs> fuck, I don't know how long. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're all very, very talented people, you know. Sometimes it's – most of the time, though, you know, you look at it and you go, you, you always have it there. You're just sort of um, shaving off the rough edges essentially and, um, yeah. you know, and, and then for everyone else you're trying to elevate what they're doing or the way that they think about stuff more than anything else or the way that they think about their own work too because I think part of – Part of the torture of being a creative is not only being able to do it, but also having to deal with your brain that's probably telling you that you can't do it, you know. It's just the the nature of that. I get pretty, uh, you know, I see a therapist. I get pretty down on the things that I've done. And, you know, uh, it's not that I forget, but I'm always looking at what's next. And, you know, you always question the choices that you make. And, you know, one of the things that I, I guess a lot of, our own hang-ups always come from from childhood experiences and you know you're always looking at that idea of comics comics is very sort of a very small pond in australia and there's a few big fish and and a lot of small people trying to gain that attention and i guess one of the hang-ups that you're always trying to beat is this idea of do i need to have other people justify my existence or my accomplishments or can I just be satisfied in myself and that's the that's the thing I guess I I would imagine it's not just me trying to fight that every day there's a lot of people that are trying to be a healthy adult and think positively about all the stuff that they're doing and they don't 
you know, they don't need the applause or the or the outwards um, gratification in order to be able to function. So I, I, you know what, I wholeheartedly agree. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think it's a constant battle. Is it good enough? Will people give a shit? Fuck it. Am I doing this for the right reasons? The reason the podcast exists now is is completely different to why it existed at the start. As I've gone on, you know, I've I've gained more insights and and there are things that I didn't think that I would give a shit about who now take up a majority of the reason why it exists and why I do it. You know, and that's why I've continued doing it. You know, and and so you know, when I got your email, I was just like, I actually was taken back. For context, I should say that in the email that I was very appreciative of, of hearing from you, and I said that the the podcast is extremely important because you're you're not just touching on you're not just talking to people within a clicky circle, which is you know I'll, I'll come back to that analogy in a moment of Australian comics <laughs> in that regard, but but you're, you're yeah. reaching a, a what I believe is a very diverse range of of makers out there, and I like the variety of that. You know, and it's and it's yeah. it's it's not pedestal creating. It's very much uh, everyone's just trying to get by and do their own thing in that sense. And I think it's yeah. very important for historical accounts of when you when you when you have people looking for research and they want to hear straight from the horse's mouth in a sense of what what someone's practices or thoughts are in respects to what sort of work they're doing. It's a it's an interesting timestamp to be able to draw back to those people that. You know, maybe the mainstream um, shows and conventions don't necessarily uh, look towards or even, you know, from a geographical um, perspective, you know, we're very much uh, we're very much like the Wild West in the sense of everybody is just trying to get by and survive in what pockets mm-hmm. they are and may, may not ne- necessarily put their work into a, a ledger award um application or go to an artist alley or something like that but there's their their methods and their uh, creativity are no less valid absolutely absolutely and and i think you know as as reporting on comics over the years when people get in touch with me and say hey i'm doing this and i feel great because it's like wow they're you know they're they're actually sending me stuff or they're getting in touch i would not know that they exist because some of these creators uh makers uh you, I would never have known that they existed had they not sent something in or, or gotten in touch. Yeah. And I imagine there's so many more out there, particularly nowadays in Australia. And and I know for a fact they're all over the they're all over the country, mm-hmm. but nobody knows about them. Yeah. And they, you know they might not even be known That's in their correct. own communities. And look, you know, and it's tough. Like, and I and I understand too. And I think it, when it comes down to thing like all this sort of stuff, it's it's about the perspective of the artist or the perspective of what they have or what they're trying to achieve with their comics work as well. You know, like there's always, everyone's got their sort of, there's a level of ego there and there's also like a level of craft that, you know, of what people are trying to do, you know, what are their ultimate goals? I think, I think I know for myself, it's always a pivoting of what the goal of what I'm trying to do, you know, and essentially I guess it's about just being happy or content, I suppose. In some cases, you know, people are trying to – I always err on the side of if, if people are trying to – the ultimate goal is to be famous out of it or to, you know, be a guest at a convention if that's the ultimate goal. You know, I think sometimes that, that might, they might find that a little bit hollow or a little bit wanting in a sense of what this sort of medium 
can offer people as a sense of perhaps either therapy or you know or, or a sense of self-worth or something like that it's it's always very interesting and i know in a sense of when you connect with some of these people you know i'm not a very i'm, I'm, I'm in a bubble up here you know what i mean i'll admit i maybe yeah. talk to maybe three or four people in comics on a regular basis otherwise i'm head down you know keep the roof yeah. over my head feed the family that sort of thing you know i yeah. i i but I think it's still worthwhile when you have those opportunities to sort of touch base with those that are generating work and are, and are doing these things. Um, it's always interesting to see what people are, are about and what they're after. Um, not everyone's going to get on, but uh, I still think it's always worthwhile to, to keep all that stuff in, in check in that regard. I've got to be honest. The, the stuff that you talked about um, with regard to, you know, the, the ego of makers and, and you know, their, their – why they may have wanted to do something, um, you know, in terms of getting, you know, being at a convention or being asked to speak, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff ran through my head when I started doing this. I started this on radio, and the first thing I could think of, and I remember getting berated by my now wife, saying, "Why are you doing it?" Like, and I was like, "Man, I want some free comics," <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and anything else after that is great. But it, and and like I said earlier. It, it it's come to a point where it's like no, actually there is a responsibility in doing this. It's not it's not um, how you Things get change comics, and people change. You know? you know, like Muhammad Ali used to say, if you think the same way that you did uh, when you were thirty, when you're fifty, then you've wasted twenty years of your life. Yeah. <laughs> like, Ali got into boxing because his bike got stolen, and he wanted to beat up the kid that that stole his bike. You know. You want to be yeah. like the champion of the world. And then later it was boxing is just a, a, the vessel for which that he can share his message, you know, so he can so he can use that kind of platform to be able to reach the masses and try to help people, you know. So his, yeah. his goals evolve in that sense. And I know for myself and, and what you're saying too, you, you, you get it, you gain a sense of perspective. There's that word again. You know, gain a sense of perspective of, of what you're trying to achieve or, or what you wanted to achieve, and that evolves over time as you go through experiences and you you analyze, and hopefully you don't overanalyze or overcriticize yourself. <laughs> yeah, easier said than done. <laughs> Again, therapy. So you know, it, it, that's that's what it's all about. There, that that um, questioning and recalibrating, and I guess just trying to find that aspect of what makes you happy. You know, so I always, even like the the, you know, you bump into the creators that are like. You know, I'm just practicing and I'm learning. I'm a bit nervous about doing this thing or trying it out. And you're like, well, you could walk out of here and get hit by a bus. And then, you know, I know that sounds horrible, but, yeah. you know, I, I, I admittedly felt like I've on each project that I've done, it's taken me a while to get into the groove of what I'm doing. So I'm learning on the job. And it's not like the pioneers that started all this stuff in the first place, you know. You look back at some of those Simon and Kirby sort of Captain America pages with the crazy layouts and guttering and going all over the place, think to yourself, you know, in terms of comics being a language, what the hell is that supposed to mean? <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, we're just trying to, we're just making it up as we're going on, you know. So. I think there's a lot of that in a creator's mindset of, of when they're, they're producing things, you know, what, what is it is that I'm doing this for or why, 
you know, and, and analyzing it as you go and finding that, trying to connect to that little piece of uh, happiness in you that keeps you moving forward or that, that, that drive to, to learn and improve and grow and, and rinse and repeat as you go through. So. I want to uh, go back to what you mentioned earlier uh, regarding experience and, you know, how you evolve uh, through, your, uh, through your life. And when I say go back, I mean go back to the start because I think we've explored uh, your the the latter half of of the way you look at your career. But how about we we talk about where, where it actually all started uh, for you? Look, as I said, as a kid, I wanted to get into co- like comics. So you've you've always wanted to 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 produce. Yeah, yeah right. I, I recall in kindergarten we used to have to do a daily journal, draw a picture, and mine was always. Batman and Robin fighting some random villain of the week because of the reruns that were obviously on television at the time. And I remember like my teachers sort of getting frustrated because it's like every day it's the same thing. And it's like, well, you know, tell that to William Dozier who produced the series. But anyway, uh, (laughs) I I even recall like there was one strip where the Batman and Robin are just standing on the hood of the car looking either side and, and sort of writing out that they, they couldn't find anyone to beat up that day. So I knew that from very early on that was something that I wanted <laughs> to sort of get into. But I didn't really read comics until, um, you know, it was definitely Phantom when I was in primary school. I My, my mother was going out with a guy – it's going to get dark for a second uh, – trigger warning. My mother was going out with a guy for many years who was uh, like a domestic violence situation uh, for her and right. me. And we, we went away for a while and we went and lived with some friends. And uh, I remember being in the apartment that we were staying in and um, they didn't have a TV, but they had a, a very, very big fish tank and a pile of phantom mm-hmm. comics I found one day. Um, so I just got into those and was reading those. And I understand what you're getting at. I never really had a connection with the character per se, apart from the cool visuals of it. You know, it was yeah. fascinating to me that a dude had two handguns strapped to him and yet chose to punch everybody. In the- <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, he's cool. Like, he's like, you know, I have these, but you know, I'm not even going to waste a bullet on you, you know. So anyway, it wasn't until sort of later in primary school, maybe year five, year six, uh, I was reading a lot of Asterix and Tintin comics, as you do. You know, they're readily yeah. available in Australian libraries. I had an older friend, maybe two years older than me, um, or two grades higher, who was into sort of American comics and stuff and introduced me to Spider-Man. So around about that sort of period in time, I, I started to collect Spider-Man comics from the local newsagent, you know, and, and and then uh, and then going to the secondhand uh, bookstores and, and trawling through the, the long boxes to find um, secondhand Spider-Man. But I was very particular. I was like, even then I was like, if I don't like the artist, you know, I, you know, I had a connection with characters. You know how, as a kid, you connect yeah. with the characters, and it's not till you're older that you have an appreciation for writers and artists. Yeah, yep. I distinctly remember having an appreciation for specific artists in Year Five. I was like, "Wow!" If it's not Eric Larson or Mark Bagley, I don't want to even fucking read it. Like, you know, that was me yeah, as right. a kid. And uh, you know, Sal Buscema took took some warming up. Uh, but but I got into to Buscema's work. You know, Alex Saviuk was in his sort of faux image comics um, knockoff. You remember a lot of artists were trying to emulate that Scott Williams, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld line, and I was like, well, what the hell is this? Like I just 
didn't sort of gel with me. But the cartoonier approach of, of like the McFarlane, the the Larson on Spider-Man specifically, that was my jam as a kid for many years. So. I think that's that. I think that's around the time that I started reading Spider-Man. It was I think it was maybe the tail end of Larson's run, or maybe the start. Of, it was like two hundred and something something. So it was midway through a um, Sinister Six story. That was my holy grail, like chasing those issues, back issues of Sinister <laughs> Six. And it was only until maybe ten years ago that I found number three. So. Oh, shit. You know, and I was, and I'm not never really a hardcore collector. When I think back, there was maybe only three or four years where I was actually collecting Spider-Man comics. Otherwise, you know, I've dropped in and out. I don't think I've picked up a, a main title in, in over a decade. But yeah, definitely, um, yeah, I was with you. Sinister Six was like this. This is great. You know, not not even realizing the structure of it of those big splash pages yeah. was sort of harking back to Ditko at the time, who. You know, embarrassingly, I look at those old Stan Lee, Steve Ditko sort of text-heavy pages and go, what the hell are these guys doing? Like, you know, it's, 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 it's really a, 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 it's a novel thing. Like, I, I, I'm the same. I remember seeing when Marvel started doing – I worked in a comic shop uh, from the age of 15 yep. for many years. And I remember when they decided, Marvel decided, hey, let's just reprint all those old comics, but we'll yeah. chuck them in like, we'll just put them on shitty paper, we'll put a shitty yeah. cover on it, and we'll sell them yeah. for like 10 bucks or 15 bucks. And yeah. they were called the essentials. Yeah. And so there was no color in them, they were all black and white. And I remember. Yeah. And and I remember flipping through them while I was at the shop because they came out while I was there. Yeah. Um, just as the graphic novel kind of, or sorry, the trade paperback collection craze started and I was flipping through them and I remember going through an X-Men, like they had X-Men 1 to X-Men 20 something and I was yeah. flipping through them and I'm like, just going, Jesus Christ, what's all, all these words, man, you know, because, because, you know, I started comics when it was all about the art, you know, it was yeah. the early nineties and you were, you were, you know, looking at. <laughs> You're looking at Liefeld drawing Juggernaut the way that he should be represented, just this fucking massive muscle, you know, behind, you know, burgundy, you know, what I'm assuming is iron plates, you know, things like that. And and all that crazy shit was just huge at the time. Yeah. And so looking at these books, you know, a, a few years later and having my, like you say, your, your eye trained on the art. And yep. I, I, that's, I think that was one of the main reasons why I couldn't read DC for such a long time. Because yeah, I just I, couldn't look at the art. Yeah, admittedly, I didn't pick up any. I was a Marvel head and never, I, you know, you dabble in, in DC via the animation or the films or what have you, but I don't think I started reading any sort of DC trades until, actually, I can remember it was the first world championships. I was flying to Greece, so it would have been 2003, and I picked up the trade paperback to the long Halloween. Yeah, right. Uh, yep. Sales work and, uh, that allowed me to sort of, you know, break the bubble and start looking at more of that, uh, the other side of the fence. Because there was a while there where I stopped collecting comics. It got to a point where I was in sort of high school, uh, maybe year nine, year 10. I'd moved away from the Gold Coast and, and was growing up on the Central Coast, New South Wales, and no place to get sort of comics. And, you know, I had a limited amount of pocket money. And But even before then, it was like, 
okay, limited amount of pocket money, you can either buy a handful of comics or you can do your kung fu lessons. You know, I was terrible <laughs> at ball sports. I played a couple of seasons of football here and there, a couple of seasons of soccer. I was always good at knocking kids over. So, I, you know, but I was always bullied as a kid. So I went into martial arts and that kind of occupied my, my time. But I was always drawing and still watching films, action movie, madman as a kid, you know, so... I always had that combination of, you know, Spider-Man posters and, um, you know, major theatrical movie posters up in the walls and stuff. So, yeah, I didn't sort of circle back around to buying any comics until maybe my first uni degree was over. Yeah, I, I mean, I still would flick through my back issues and stuff like that. I, and I was always drawing comics on whatever piece of paper I can find. But the subjects pivoted away from, like, knockoff superhero fan art um, style comics to like, you know, Bruce Lee fair or, yeah, right. you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I laughed as a kid, a friend of mine and I would draw our own comics and we were reading this little manga story about a character who was like a Kung Fu kid. And we decided to write our own story. So we wrote a story and we're two 12 year olds, right? We write this story for our comic and then we sat down and we're watching Bruce Lee movies one day and realized we'd written Fist of Fury. <laughs> I don't know if that speaks much to the writers back in the 1970s. Or spoke much to our lack of imagination. But, yeah, martial arts became a big sort of thing in my life for a number of years. So, yeah, 2004, I think I picked up some Paul Jenkins' um, Spectacular Spider-Man in the shops and just started having a look. I think Astonishing X-Men number one came out at the time. So I picked it up and went, okay, this looks interesting and yeah. just started reading again for a couple more years. So, yeah, crazy. And then so and so there you go. And then you from uni, you start reading and then you end up somehow creating comics. Yeah, it was 2005 when I, I just got back from the second world championships and I was – trying out at this um, cartooning company that I was working for in Sydney that would go to functions and do caricatures and stuff. I was also looking for work. I was looking at, you know, Marvel's submission process and stuff like that. Yep. And I'd submitted to a few places and, and could wallpaper my house with all the rejection letters and stuff. <laughs> I, um, you know, there was a connection that used to go to the gym where I worked who worked for Disney so, you know, Disney gave me nice rejection letters to go and study, uh, you know, anatomy and this <laughs> stuff. Also, I think at one stage he ended up at Aristocrats and said, oh, do you want to apply? But, you know, I was always a bit err on the side of let's let's go help a, a poker machine company, you know, suck the community. Yeah, right. Blood. So I wasn't sort of keen on that idea. Marvel, I got a letter back from Joe Quesada, and it was probably the nicest rejection letter I've ever gotten. <laughs> so it was very, very encouraging uh, back in the day. And I discovered that there was a few local guys um, doing their own comics. I found I went, took a day trip into Sydney into King's Comics and oh, and Comics Kingdom, and got some local sort of asked for their indie comics or whatever just to see what was there, and yep. contacted one group. They were based at. Strathfield or somewhere, I think, can't remember, close to the city in Sydney. Mm -hmm. But I ended up, you know, going to see them and hanging out with them and drawing a, an issue of one of their characters. But they were all like the Pepsi-Cola knockoff equivalent of superheroes that you're already aware of. Yeah, right, you know, right, yeah. Sort of indie stuff. And I think they liked the idea of, of sitting around 
talking comics and drinking beer rather than sort of making the comics. So, you know, their output over many, many years was very, very small and not to, not to disparage them. I appreciated the time and had fun with them over those years, but you know, the dude that was running the place, uh, like a lovely guy, but I think he was going through some things at the time. And uh, at that stage he'd met a guy, Chris Sequira, and he was going to help do some writing and indie stuff. And Chris has had a long sort of career of doing um, independent stuff as well as stuff for the overseas um, big league, you know, writing stuff. He got jerked around by them and by proxy I got jerked around by them. So we thought this is a bad situation and, you know, yeah. the best self-defense is not put yourself in the fight to begin with. Yeah. So we just we just walked away. So Chris was very encouraging. I met, I met him at a con. He was doing his Sherlock Holmes series for Black House Comics based in Sydney. Yep. He was encouraging of the work that I was starting to do in uni, wanting to sort of do my own comic. This was for my honours course. And that was that character very naively was looking at, you know, wanting to do a superhero or action comic with an Australian sort of tinge to it rather than just sort of stick a cape on a guy and go, meanwhile, yeah. <laughs> looking at mythology and, and, and I guess the mythologies of Australia and, you know, the, the formula process of what, you know, Jack Kirby had done with his more sort of street level or war level characters and, you know, in, in getting my stuff printed with the, the publisher in, in, in Sydney, he said, do you want to come on board and be part of, you know, what we're doing here with Black House? So I was off to the races at that point, you know, just doing that indie book. That that kind of led me through to there. Yeah, right. And uh, how did you jump from there to uh, Kid Phantom? Because Kid Phantom was the – was that the first major – thing that you did yeah i'd been going to the cons for a number of years in 20 2011 2012 i'd only been with black house for maybe a year or so doing a soldier legacy comics and they were approached by a company to offer their ip for a commercial right. so you insurance were doing a series of commercials and they wanted one set in a comic store with a, an ip so they really liked the the soldier legacy concept it worked with the um, you know, Australian company and yep. blah, blah, blah. So, so that, you know, I created some of the, I guess, the concept art for the statue and the placard that they used in the ad and, you know, guys, guys like, um, you know, Jason Polos was working for Black House at the time. He was doing his EG series. Jason Franks, he was doing like Kagamoga and, and editing some stuff with um, Black House. Obviously, Chris Sequeira had his Dark Detective. I think Jan Scherpenhausen had his Twilight Age series there. So a bunch of guys were doing stuff. That was all part of the commercial, but it was mainly centred around the soldier character. So I was very appreciative of that. And that sort of parlayed into, you know, getting a, a guest spot. At, I think it was Supernova to begin with. So, yeah, so going to these conventions and having that sort of access to to people and meeting new creators, you know, I met Wolf uh, from Gestalt and the Gestalt guys, and they were – they were always very encouraging and uh, I'd come to him every show with new samples of what I was doing or my, my work and I would sit with him with my work and let him sort of tear shreds through it. And <laughs> yeah, did right. the same thing with Chris, did the same thing with Chewy Chan in particular. Whenever I was in town, I'd get Chewy Chan to look at my work and uh, give critiques. I think the first person I ever had give critique was, uh, might have either been Stuart McKinney or Todd McFarlane, but they were very... Um, 
friendly, you know, in terms of that process of going through the work and and um, they, would, they would have they would have both gone through it quite a bit by that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've had many, many reviews over the years, including Howard Chaikin's very early on. That was probably the most brutal but eye-opening experience. I'll circle wow. back to that later. <laughs> Walter Simonson, he was lovely. Mark Wade was very helpful. I don't mean to fucking, you know, Robert De Niro once told me to don't be a wanker and drop names. So, um, no, it's, it's a terrible joke. But anyway, I don't mean it's to. Right. It's all right. I can, I can take it out in post. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the experience I was having. Like uh, with Chris, uh, so I had this relationship with Chris. Now, Chris, um, over the years, we'd always tried to pitch things at different places. We'd had some very fun and interesting meetings with editors overseas. You know, I got into DC Comics at Burbank with him a, a number of years back and it was uh, good to get that sort of feedback. I'm never going to be a house style, so that, that goal very much pivoted away in that right, sense. Right. But Chris always kept his finger on the pulse in regards to what was happening and, and around about, I think, 2015, 2016, there were movements at Fruit. And I guess for the listeners, you know, Fruit Publications have been publishing The Phantom in Australia since 1948. Mm -hmm. From the early to mid-80s, I believe Jim Shepard was running the place. Uh, You can get more comprehensive histories elsewhere, but suffice to say that Jim had passed away a number of years ago. His widow and son were sort of in caretaker mode at that point, and they were looking at uh, selling the business on. Glenn Ford, who had worked as an art director and, and done covers and, and some of the very first early Australian-created phantom stories, was still in the picture, worked under Jim. Uh, he was he came in with a partner, Renee White, who was uh, always on the in the phantom fan community, and they, they joined forces and bought the company. And, you know, while they were stabilising things, they were looking to try to inject some new life into the line and, and projects, and Chris wanted to pitch... Phantom by Gaslight, because he's very much into his Sherlock Holmes, Victorian era, very much an expert on that stuff, Um, is published around the world in regards to his Sherlock Holmes work. Glenn has been in the Australian industry for a a long time, very much underrated and unsung, um, but had owned a string of of shops back in the day, uh, Phantom Zone stores. Yep. And he knew of... I forgot about uh, them. Yeah, <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah. So he, he knew of a lot of creators, like far beyond my experiences and stuff because I've only sort of been around for, for a cup of coffee. So he had Jason Polos in mind to do this work. But he said to me, do some uh, sketches of the Phantom as a kid and uh, get back to me. I was literally jumping on a plane to go to San Diego in 2016 at the time and... Mm-hmm. I said to my partner, it's ironic you're sort of going over there to sort of see what's available and talk to people, but you might have a gig back home. So that was very yeah. uh, nice in that sense. Uh, we'd had a lot of like close calls overseas in regards to, you know, almost had a series with Thrillbent when Mark Wade said, yeah, come and play, but folded that sort of label. Yeah. In the end, I came back, I, I showed some of the, the concepts and then um, I think it was Oz Comic Con September 2016. I was I was already working on a series with Wolf. I think that's where I, I was sort of got to and got a bit off track because I've been seeing Wolf over the years and, and seeing Christian Reed and that sort of thing. He said to me, "Let's do something." And Elridge Kid was something that I'd been working on at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was around the time September 2016. Glenn came to the show, handed me the 
sort of a Marvel method plot, essentially, of what the writer had come up with yep. for the Kid Phantom, and, and we sort of went from there. So, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Holy moly. So that would have been, I think that's that's when I've... When did well, I, yeah, the end of that was when I first met you. So I was that's doing... Right. Yeah, so Tom Tom introduces. That's right. At um, was that the symposium. it was? It was at the symposium, and I think yeah, and it was shortly after that that I actually spoke to you on air at at Triple That's, uh, right. AAA. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was I can't remember what issue I was up to with Elridge Kid. I kind of put Soldier by the side while I was doing Elridge Kid, and then yeah, uh, I did the first issue of Kid. I was drawing the first issue of Kid Phantom when I met you. Uh, that's right because you were because I, I i just remember there was a bunch of stuff that you couldn't talk about yeah and but we, we were interviewed you nonetheless yeah so no, i appreciated <laughs> that um so yeah I, I did that um the first issue was with this um he was a very uh new writer and he'd written enough content there for several issues so i just picked a logical stop point for that first issue but then there was issues, there was problems with what the second story was going to be. And I was on a whole holiday with, you know, a bunch of friends and Andrew Constant was there. And we'd always gotten on. I don't, as I said, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit introvert and I don't talk to many people in Aussie comics. But um, I guess when two dudes are the same eye height, it's a lot easier to have a conversation. So, <laughs> so Andrew and I uh, had always been buddies at cons. It would be me, Andrew, and Christian sitting around the bar. I don't drink, but we'd sit around and, and talk old Jack Kirby war stories or anything that was sort of of interest. And Andrew said it'd be cool to sort of do something. And I rung up my boss, Glenn, and said, hey, Andrew's just done some work for DC. He's a great writer. If you're having problems with the writer, maybe you should consider, you know, talking to him. Mm. So then I contacted Andrew and said, "Hey, would you like to do this? I know you, you you've got torn the horror series, and I know you've, you've written Batman and you, you know, the Demon and that sort of stuff. But uh, do you want to do this kids uh, <laughs> like kid all ages, yeah. uh, kid Phantom series? You know, and, and he's like, "Yeah, cool. This will be fun." So we worked on. We ended up doing maybe. 10, 10 stories, yeah, 10 stories together. One of wow. them hasn't come yet. So that was that was a lot of fun and going through that process of seeing how, not only how Andrew works, but how scripts evolve and how the stories evolve. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like anything, I don't think I got comfortable with that character until maybe the last issue. <laughs> you know, there was always things along the way, the hiccups and bumps and all that sort of stuff. But it was an honor, you know, you don't hear about it from other people, but you do hear like you get the odd letter come through and the letters pages. And, you know, I know the publisher was a big fan of it as well as, um, you know, a lot of the kids that would do little reviews and things like that. You know, it was a it was a bridging tool between that character and maybe the older stories that a young kid might pick up a black and white version and go, I don't know what's going on here, but at least with the fun sort of color kids version, it might be something that they appeal to. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I have my thoughts about the whole thing and, and how it all sort of played out, but uh, it was nice to do that. It was the first series that Fru had done in 50 years, you know, outside of the main wow. stories. At least it was something, you know, and it allowed me to then sort of parlay my own, writing and, and drawing stories with the main character and, and and put some of my interests into the book. Yeah, yeah. 
my taste changed uh, over time with comics, particularly with like uh, after that Howard Chaikin review in particular, I started to sort of branch out away from capes and tights and, you know, now I have an appreciation for it, but it's not the stuff I like to sit and read on a regular basis. So it's crazy. Uh, I think I think in the general sense, if you're, you know, I, I think they have a, a very large place in the pantheon of comics history. Mm. I myself am always, always drawn back um, for particular reasons. And they also vary over time. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think it gets to a certain stage where, and I've said this many times, the characters themselves and uh, the values that particular characters from from all comic companies that I've read over the years, particularly superheroes, their values still hold up. I still enjoy the character as, as a character. But the stories, I think, for me, have now become too overly familiar. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many times. It, it just feels like I've already eaten this meal. I've eaten this meal too many times. Sure. How many times can Spider-Man fight Doctor Octopus? <laughs> right, you know, and I think I think it's because of that it loses its weight, and you know, all the different uh, story designs, you know, they were all they all just kind of they're all too familiar. It's an eternal. I, I heard it described as a, it's an eternal act two. <laughs> yeah, you're never going to see the end, and when you do, it's kind of a novelty thing. It's a continuity, out of continuity thing. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, it's the stories that have an end point are always the ones that are the most rewarding. You know, I look at I look at all the all the stuff that indie creators do. You know, you you have the start, middle, and the end, and it doesn't matter what order, but it's it's a finite story, and the, each story particularly if it's done really well, has its own gravitas and you go, wow, that's why that story sticks in my mind so much. You know, I've, I've mentioned the book, The Coffin, so many times over the years to wh- whether it was at the comic shop when I was working there, um, whether it be now, whether it be with, um, with other people on the podcast. It's just that story sticks in my mind. It was a four-issue miniseries and it knocked it out of the park. It, just, it was just an amazing, an amazing story. And, um, you know, I, I don't get me wrong. I still love, I, I think, I still think that Spider-Man is the embodiment of the most human superhero that I can think of. Like the, the values that, that, that character set up, you know, in 1960, wherever, 62, still hold up today. And, and yep. it's, that's the reason why it resonated yeah. with me as a young kid. I, I remember one of my instructors, uh, I trained with a guy Actually, he used to he used to fight Dolph Lundgren back in the tournaments, the Kaikushin tournaments shit. back in the day. So he was a yeah, he's hardcore fella. Uh, he was training me for my first world world titles, and he said to me, "This is going to sound wanky, but he's like, you are Peter Parker. Like you're the kid who, you know, you just get bullied on, and you go, and, but you, you you lift your head up and you keep sort of going, and and." Um, you know, you can hold your own and that sort of thing. So I always had that connection with that character and, and I'll, I always have that love and respect for those that are creating that work and, and, and do all that sort of thing. I just know that I'm no longer the audience for it anymore. So yeah. my, my tastes have evolved. And But having said that, I still I still go back to the well of like 1950s sort of EC comics as, as like the things that have sort of blown my mind or, you know, even like um, – those artists that kind of play in the ballpark of like that Alex Toth style of um, 
drawing or, you know, where you can see the hand in the line work and that sort of thing. So those are the things that kind of interest me in, in, in that respect. And it's less about, you know, following the continuity of, of the lives. I do respect the continuity to, to a certain degree. You kind of have to have it if you're writing yeah. or pitching any sort yeah. of phantom stories. It's a very, you know, co- continuity over, over decades. And we've seen it in DC comics can be very challenging because things don't always line up. So, you know, that some of that kind of makes it fun, even from a creator's perspective. But yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. It's like, you never get the, you never get the punchline yeah. or you never get the, never get the re, like the resonance of what was it all about. I guess that's why on the flip side of things, when anything ever gets adapted, they go back to the well of the origin story because it's kind of like, once you tell that origin story and that character goes through that massive arc, what's there next to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I think that's why, particularly of late, I've really enjoyed uh, autobiographical comics or, yeah. you know, nonfiction comics, if that, if that is it. No, yeah, that, yeah. 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 Right. So, you know, um, historical historical events or historical accounts, whether they be biographies or or just of you know moments in time, they are the most appealing as I've gotten older because it's it's allowed me to experience the medium that I love the most out of all mediums on the planet, um, as well as uh, you know hearing a story from someone that is a, a little more sincere. You know, yeah, even I if it, it is fantastical, you know, it it doesn't necessarily have to be rooted in reality but it has to be you know it's got to be something other than some someone who's done something wrong getting beaten up or whatever you know it's just the, the breadth of of stories is what now interests me so i you know it, it doesn't it can have capes in it i don't give a shit but as yeah. long as it's told from a from a particular perspective that's I'm my, not, um, i'll enjoy that, it. that is my favorite thing too to even as a creator to um inject some sort of historical element to the work so that it feels like it has some sort of real world connection for me. Like I, I, as cosmic as my taste might get, might be like, you know, some of Jack Kirby's fantastic four stuff, but um, I'm not a space guy. So I tend to everything very grounded. And, you know, whenever I'm doing a story, whether it was soldier legacy or, you know, my phantom, the phantom work that I've been doing, whether it's like phantom in Vietnam or anything else that I've pitched, it's always go to the history books and see what yeah. was going on at the time of where this story is set and how does this feed into an aspect of the character. So it's not just a case of here's, here's a dude in a cape or a costume and I'm going to stick him in this moment and he's just going to be some sort of observer. Yeah. And you could put anybody there, you know, whether it's Garfield or, or Phantom. <laughs> the story has to work within the context of, who that character is and what they're going through within the moment in time that you've chosen to set that story. So you're right. Like you can tell a a historical story or or a biographical story that maybe has some element of fantastical in there. And that's the beauty part of comics or even animation, you know, is you've got the ability to do that in PM. So, so why not utilize it? You know, one of the things I'm always saying to students when they're pitching stories this story could work as a live action. Try to think of it as this is the medium that you've got and the potential that you can do with what, what you're trying to tell. Perhaps think visually in a sense of what this idea is and, and how you can inject some of that visual uh, aspects into the, the story. Yeah. Otherwise, it's why don't we just go out and shoot it now with a camera? You yeah, know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You're listening to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hi. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Graphic Nature on whatever podcast service you use. Uh, Maybe even rate it while you're there. Uh, It'd be great if you could throw us some likes and or follows on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter as well. For more info, check out the website, graphicnature.media. I appreciate you listening. Uh, Thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the episode. I don't, as I said, I don't talk to too many people in in Aussie comics, and and part of the time it's like I'll, I'll meet someone at a con, they'll come up to me and say, uh, to be honest, I was really intimidated. I didn't want to come and talk to you. I'm like, oh, that, but but it was only that I'd talked to one of their friends before, and he's yeah, like, right. oh, he's actually a cool dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go, oh, well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just an intimidation of that people don't really. Uh, it doesn't help when you're posting photos of you know kicking someone's head in with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, <laughs> uh, you know, I I understand. I mean, I did it because it was it was. It was a combination of, you know, being bullied and wanting to defend myself, um, no, you know, as well as the growing up in that and that in those circumstances yeah, yeah. where you're like, I don't want to feel. I want to feel as though if I'm ever in a situation that I can get out of it. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's that was essentially the driving force behind that stuff. So, anyway, I know like you go to cons and everyone. Sometimes you, when people do talk to you, they just talk at you about all their things that they're doing. And, and on one hand, you can be pissed off about it and, and like feel like they've monopolized a conversation, a little bit like how I feel now. <laughs> but I'm asking like, you questions to elicit true. those responses. So it's a little true. different. And, and on the other hand, you, you think, oh, well, you're flattered enough that you think that they, they, they care about your opinion on what they're doing. I suppose, but often it's a lot of tire kicking or, you know, I had a, an experience at a con a few years ago uh, or a while ago now where I was a guest at a con and people had come over and that are from Artist Alley and they're like, oh, yeah, guest, huh? And they're, they're going, oh, you know, one day I'll be here or next year I'll probably be over there. And they're pointing at Nicola and David Yarden and you're thinking. Jesus Christ, really? People do that shit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I don't talk to many people. I'm like, I don't need, I don't. I'm not here to talk shop or, or flop flop it out and measure it up against yours. I'm just here to do comics, man, and draw and, and meet people and and. But why uh, do they think that that works? Like, what? I, that, that has I it ever know. happened? What suit? Like someone becomes a superstar? Yeah. And has that ever happened? Not, no. Right. No. no. I don't know. <laughs> they think when they do one comic that the heavens should open and rain down praise, and you think, well. You know, it's not, it's not about what it's – it's not what we're here for, you know. Look, as I said, I don't begrudge anybody that's just trying to make a living or trying to get by. And at the end of the day, we're all just insecure bags of meat that are trying not to look dumb in front of each other. I'm going I'm, I'm <laughs> to see if I can make a soundbite out of that. That's brilliant. Yeah. I tell my students that. I'm like, I know myself, I get into a class and I'll bring up things and think, fuck, I'm old. Yeah. Or like – these the kids don't get what I'm talking about, or oh, I walked into a movie and saw this thing, and oh, that's right, you weren't born yet. Uh, yeah, and you think, that's, that's, I um, think that's that's one of the hardest things to to get accustomed to as as you get older. Like I, I've been experiencing it now yeah, for a little while. True. Like at work, a lot of the kids that are coming through, like they're tw- like they're adults, they're twenty years old. But when I talk to them, yeah. they don't understand what I'm talking about, or they don't know, they've never seen it, and uh, you yeah. know, and. And it's, I'm now turning into that old man that goes, you don't know anything, 
because you don't know what I'm talking about. But obviously they don't know because I was born yeah. 20 years after them, 20 years before they were. But that's what I mean. I say to the kids, you know, everyone doesn't want to look silly. It's okay if you make a mistake or say something dumb. It's fine. We're all learning. And I've been on this earth long enough to know that nothing is oh, ever yeah. permanent in that respect. You know? So just relax. And But, yeah, you're right. Like growing up and I spent a lot of time by myself, you know, at home while mum was off work and single mum. And you, you go back and you learn things and you research and you watch reruns and you know, I can get into dumb conversations about 1950s yeah, yeah. sitcoms or, you know, we'll talk about wars and things and you're astounded by the fact that there's so much information out there now but people, I guess it's the fact of there's so much out there, where do people look? So yeah. they kind of stay to yeah, their that, own that's, sort of That's probably the most interesting thing of late that I've noticed is, as you say, it's as the volume of information has grown people are now more and more willing to stay within just a really small amount, you know, to occupy a small space rather than look at what else is around. That's, it's, it's amazing. Like it's, it's from my perspective, even looking at, let's say comics, there are more companies now producing comics now. And there is, you know, if you wanted to keep your eye on things, like my back pocket just can't compete. You just can't. And, and it's, And now, in some respects, I wish that someone would throw me free comics because you know, it would probably be the only way you could keep across it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's there's so much to keep an eye on, and go well. You know, it's 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 brought about a reticence to stick with DC and Marvel now because there is so many other options and there are so many other companies and books, and even even here in Australia, like it's just like every every person I interview. I find that there's another three or four people in their circle that are doing something that I can check out. Even that's growing. Again, it's perspective, as I said, of what that person is trying to look for. Like I, I, I'm really happy to talk to people who are just doing their, their, their indie comics and they, they're just doing it because they, they love the medium and that's what we want to do. What like repels me in a conversation is when someone's done one comic and they're talking about, working for Marvel or DC in a year or something like that, that, that sort of stuff kind of, uh, I don't want to talk about that. I suppose it's just them, you know, trying to, you know, visualize and manifest. Which is cool, but like, you know, dreams are dreams and dreams are only dreams until you wake (laughs) up, you know? And and I, I mean, when I first started, I was the same where I, you know, I thought, I thought, Oh, I'd love to, draw for my favorite character or whatever but as, as for a few years later you're sort of like well i think i'd just be happy just doing this australian stuff and even if i'm even if it's just anonymous um and i get a few people that read it and if i can make some sort of money out of it to support that you know it's not like i'm i believe it's ever going to be the only job i ever do you know like i've worked two often three or four jobs at the same time to kind of get through and, and at least still justify why I'm doing the work to myself. I have to remind myself that it's okay just to like what I'm doing rather than think about how do I monetize this? I look at everybody who has ever done anything who's gained some sort of success. They've never looked at the success and said, that's what I want. It's always, I'm going to import yeah. all my passion into this one thing it's often those people who gain the successes that you see, even even if they are mediocre successes. It, the success has always been a byproduct. It's never been, it has never, never, never Correct. been the object of desire. 
I say to students all the time, like they you get they get stressed out about a lot and they've they've got their lives and they've got families and things that are going on and I'm the same. I've got like life and family and things that you're trying to care about and and move on and you're stressing about how will I get this out, how will people see this, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, I, I, there's only one thing that they can control and that's the work that's in front of them. I say always side-eye anybody that when they talk about their success never mentions that element of luck. Yeah, because which plays a huge part. <laughs> absolutely, and you got no control over it whatsoever. Like I remember at San Diego Comic-Con, I went to a, a DC Origins panel and uh, you know, I, I'd met Greg Capullo a couple of times and we, we maybe chat once or twice a year. He's a lovely, lovely guy and sitting there listening to him and a few others talk about how they got into comics. And it was all, it was interesting. It was 20, it was 2013 because I was going to um, the World Championships mm-hmm. in the UK straight yeah. after the con. And <laughs> Heathrow custom looking at me funny like, you're a student and yet you can afford to go to America and then come here. I'm like, yeah, I got a lot of debt. Um, but anyway, um, and not one of those origin stories had happened post 9-11. It was all about, oh, you know, I went into the uh, the convention with my folio and I bumped into this editor and or I went to DC Comics office and uh, while I was seeing one editor, I just um, hassled the other editors at the, at the desk and, you know, happened to bump into this guy or happened to bump into that person or this person was looking for a gig so he called up. You know, those are those elements of luck that were just, you know, now as I said, nowadays, like if we didn't have an appointment to go to like into Burbank, security would just you know in men in black where will smith goes into the like the building and it's just like this big room with a like dark nondescript room with a fan and a security yes. guard there that's essentially it it's like if you don't have an appointment you ain't going yeah. you ain't getting anywhere so you know uh, and and nowadays the cons are so much about the pop culture and all the uh, sort of ethereal yeah. sort of stuff they can't look at things on the floor you know, so you don't see people with folios anymore. It's a lottery system of put your work in, come back the next day and hope you get a call up, you know. So it's... The parallels of the comics industry with the music industry are exactly the same. Uh, the people that get the jobs are the ones that work the hardest. Yeah. As simple as that. And you can, uh, you know, the quality of art is subjective. Absolutely. Quality yeah. of story is subjective, you know, because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, what I write, you may yeah. not like. You know, it's it's you can't write one thing for the one person and everyone's going to like it. It's just not the case. Same with music. And so you look at the bands that are always working hard and they're out and they're touring. It's the same as the guys that are always drawing and always just want to pump out the work. They're the guys that get the jobs. Well, not guys, but people, I should say, because they're working. Well, you can that in Australia because, as I said at the beginning, it's the Wild West, you know, and people aren't going to know any better. No, you can, but I, you can say, I disagree. I think you can say you're Billy the Kid. But back, like back home, you're, you're just a cattle rustler. Like, well, no yeah, one... but but that's my point. Like, you can say whatever you want, but the proof is always in the pudding. And whether it's the Wild West or not, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody says. It's like, well, show me the work, because someone along the line is going to go, yeah. okay, show me what you can do. And then when they fall on their face, yeah, spot on, spot on. Yeah. You know? So, so it, you know, of, like, there's a lot of good people out there that are that are working hard towards what they want to do, and they've got the contacts and the means and and that's fantastic. Um, I've, I've been very fortunate in, in thinking about my own work where maybe there's only a handful of people that, that like what I'm doing, but those handful of people 
have have allowed me to then, you know, put food on the table or pay some bills or absolutely. You know, we we recently bought a house and that was just me hustling and putting. Congratulations! Putting, you know, thank you. Uh, putting putting that money away and my partner and I putting it together and and um, finding a place. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, and, you know, it was a combination of at one point I was sort of on the tail end of working with Fru and then doing a short stint doing work on the deep as well as teaching at the same time. There was a, a few nights a week there where it was like, you're not getting to bed tonight. You're just going to have to work straight through and keep going and go to work, you know. So, yeah. Um, I know that feeling too well. Whatever that goal might be towards what what people are doing, as you say, you, you can only control it with the, the product. But not only just the product, like it's, it's easy to say hard work, but if you're set in your ways and not looking at how you can improve the work from each iteration, I, I think that's the important thing. Like it's not... Oh, yeah, I, I took that as a given. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're right, you're right. But I'm saying it to anybody else that's thinking, well, I've been drawing these, these same pages for years and I'm not getting anywhere. Look, it, it is hard. Like not, not everybody, as I said, like, I, I watch a lot of boxing, right? And I kind of equate it to Marvin Hagler's career. You know Marvin Hagler? No, no. Um, Marvin, Marvin Hagler just passed away recently, um, rest in peace. Um, he was one of the big four, like middleweight, sort of that, that that they called him the Fab Four back in the 80s. There was like him, uh, late 70s, early 80s, him, Roberto Duran, who they just made a movie on recently, um, Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns. And Hagler didn't get an opportunity to fight for a title until about four, oh, there was a high, I think it was like at least 40 or 50 fights in his professional career until someone gave him the opportunity. And it was only through petition. Now, part of it was racism. Um, and part of it, I guess, was where, where he was born. So, or, or where he was living, you know, you had to sort of um, meet the right person as well as the prejudices of um, that sporting body in the particular area, you know, as opposed to say someone like Sugar Ray Leonard, who was very charismatic, could talk the yeah. talk. He was like Muhammad Ali type, you know, smiley, pretty man, you know, straight into the Olympics, off the back of the Olympics, you know, earning big money on his very early fights. And Hagler had to scrimp and scrape and fight and claw his way yeah. to people actually giving a fuck yeah. about him, you know? Yeah. So I always respect that edict, I guess, of all I can control is getting into that gym and working hard and getting into those fights and, and beating convincingly until someone pays yeah, attention. Ultimately, ultimately just comes down to something that I've always known. It took me a long time to learn. It took me, I think, into my early 30s to learn it. But uh, it was reiterated to me by a good friend of mine uh, a few months ago. And essentially, at the end of the day, if you want to get better at anything, you just got to do the work. That's it. Yeah, yeah, you got to do it. That's the hard part about teaching because the courses maybe are like 12 weeks. And you say to the kids, if you're not putting in the hours afterwards, then... You know, it's I could I could get up the front here and tell you how to fly your arms around in the water, but unless you get in the pool, you ain't gonna swim. You know. So, uh, yep. It's a Doctor Phil thing, I think it sounds it like. Matter. Jesus. It doesn't matter. You know, at the, you know, if it if it rings true and it, um, you know, yeah. what are you gonna do? Uh, I tell you, a really good book that I read recently. If you ever get an opportunity to listen to a good autobiography. 
Um, John Cleese's autobiography yeah, is right. fantastic, but yeah, and and the and the audio book version of it, he reads it himself, so that's really good. It's called So What, I think. Um, oh, so anyway, I think it's called. Uh, but he he brought out a book, and I'll show you the cover. Um, great great podcast material. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all right. A lot of you know, I've uh, it's okay. Go on. Um, it's called Creativity: A Short and Cheerful Guide. I think uh, anybody that's doing something creative should read it. It's only a small read. He, he said he had plenty of time to read and edit. It's like the old Mark Twain adage of when he wrote a letter to somebody, sorry, it's such a long letter, I didn't have time to write a shorter one. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's beautiful in terms of what it talks about. He, it, like the little blurb on the back says there's a myth that creativity is something that you have to be born with. This isn't the case. Anyone can be creative. So it just talks about the, the modes of how you can, I guess, weaponize your your thoughts and producing and creativity in order to sort of achieve, I guess, what you want to do. I mean, he's coming from a, from a writing perspective, but, he, but it, it, it covers yeah. all facets. He used to lecture businesses about the process. So I guess it, it, it comes, it, it feeds back or it rings true a lot of the time in what, what we're sort of doing, whether it's you're, you're interviewing in your investigations or, you know, well, yeah, comic I, work. I'm, I'm still so. learning with, with regard to interviewing. I'm sure that after this, I will turn around and go, uh, should have done this, should have done that, Chris did that, could have asked that, you know, and that's part of the game, you know. In, yeah. I'm, just a, I'm just a human being and I will get better over time. It's just, I've got to, again, just got to put the work in and, you know, you know, reevaluate and, and get better, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Got the healthiest way to be. I find as soon as somebody thinks that they know everything or they've done it, they stop progressing. Yeah. And I see it all the time. It's the equivalent of that kid in high school that knows how to draw that one thing good. So they just draw that one thing yeah. all the time. And you go, okay, that, that three-quarter headshot of Batman is great, but can you draw an apple? Can you? Draw a man yeah, sitting on a and couch. That's it. You know, I think that's that's the hardest thing. I, when I first had designs of becoming a comic artist, it would have been or in my early thirties. I had a fucking shit ass job. I fucking hated that job, and I decided that no, I've got to be. I've got to be doing something by the time I'm forty in comics. But the the lesson I learned from that is you don't have to uh, caveat it with a bit of a oh, it doesn't negative matter. comment. But, but you, you know, it, it was just that it was. It was the realization that I'm not going to get any better at it because it was always like staring at a blank page and going, what the fuck am I going to do? And it's like, well, what are you going to do? You just start drawing. And because if you don't do it, you're not going to get any better. And if you don't get any better, you're not going to do it. So, you know, I just yeah. I went out, bought a pencil, and I forced myself to look at my shit drawings every day on the train as I went to work. And interestingly enough, after six months, looking at that first pad versus looking at the last one was huge. Like, and that was just six months. You know, the difference yeah. was just remarkable. You know, Chuck Jones used to say, "You, you got a thousand or ten. I can't remember if it was a thousand or ten thousand shitty drawings in you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's ten thousand because <laughs> I reckon yeah. I did about a thousand, and they were all shit out. But, but." <laughs> You know, in the grand scheme of things, and it's always, you know, you're looking at people who are in the industry who have got jobs who are doing remarkable things, and then you look at your pad and yeah. you go, fuck, that's that's the worst yeah. thing that anyone on the planet has drawn. And so, yeah. 
you know, yeah, it is, but it's, but it's, I suppose it's part of human nature. And essentially you get to a certain point where you are satisfied with the level that you're at. I get it. We can't all be like, you know, Barry Wintersmiths or, or those sorts yeah. of things, but there's always a, a niche to be filled somewhere. I guess that's, that's, you know, and you have to, <laughs> it's hard. It, it, like we're talking in terms of it being like um, the creator themselves and how they feel about it. But from a commercial aspect, it can be really hard to, rationalize when you're producing something with a back history of, you know, the fa- the phantom in particular, uh, like I, I think about, you know, it's not like any other character where you've had 30 years of the same guy drawing mm-hmm. that character and then other country artists being told to draw like that one guy drawing. Like, you know, there is a house style with Marvel for a number of years when Kirby was doing work and Don Heck said that, Stanley told him to, you know, Jack draw like Jack, Steve draw like Steve, and everybody else draw like Jack. Um, and then I lasted for, for a certain degree, I guess, you know, with John Romita and then Todd McFarlane coming in, shaking things off, and you start to get more of a diversification. But it always rubber bands back. But in the case of Phantom, it's like, here's Cy Barry's work, everybody draw like Cy Barry, and then you get some, you know, quote, I guess, kid come along and draw this character in a very cartoony approach of sort of a Ben 10, poor man's Darwin Cookish scrawl sort of thrown into the, the, the mixture. And all of a sudden it's like you're, you're asking them to put aside their perception of what comic art is because they're like, you know, at the end of the day, not to be disparaging to some of the readership, but their uh, vocabulary is very yeah. small in that Love. And 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 not and not not to their you know it's it's not their fault, but it's but it's but it's no. it's what they've seen and it's all that they've seen. They follow the character. That's yeah. that's what they've seen. So any attempts to kind of draw differently to that is um, they don't know how to articulate the differences other than it's it's garbage. And 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 look, I can see their point. I I understand that because there are a lot of times where. I've been reading a serial and it gets, you know, the creative team changes or even if they get like a guest artist, it's enough to kind of yep. go, whoa, uh, what, what? Oh no, yeah. that I don't know. My eyes not, I don't yeah. dig it. No, I understand it too. Uh, what I don't understand is when the, the attacks come out at people, like creators. The way <laughs> oh, that's they, just they ridiculous. Or, you know, that's just different. And I kind of say to myself, it's not like when I started Kid Phantom, they started torching the old stuff like yeah. so it never exists like if you love that old stuff it's there still <laughs> you can read it in fact this this stuff is isn't actually yeah. for you at all it's like when when you know when you get grown men yelling at what Batgirl's <laughs> wearing this week i think it's were you reading this before like you know what i mean like i i find uh, my bewilderment at this argument because it's the same as the latest masters of universe iteration like all these people, like I couldn't believe it. All these, all right. these hate posts of the latest Masters of the Universe uh, uh, cartoon, and there's nothing wrong with it. It was great. And it's like you've destroyed the innocence. You've destroyed my childhood. Really? Did they? <laughs> did they though? <laughs> did they? But but my question is, my question is, Paul, did they watch the original? Have they? When was the last time they watched the original cartoons? They are fucking naff. Yep. They were made. They were made to push a toy line. Well, not only that, but the, but the, 
the the acting is shit in them. The the animation is yep. is shit. You know, you just yep. kind of go, "What are you talking about?" Destroyed yep. my childhood. Rose colored glasses for sure. Yeah. But yeah, everyone. I think it's. I think that feeds into an entirely different argument in regards to, well, one, mental health, but two, I guess. Um, the idea of the the culture behind outrage of just wanting to be angry for the sake of being angry and then getting the likes and attention and feeling yeah, part of right. the fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like when you're ever in a self-defense situation, like, you know, even at, when I was in security, you could tell those that were just making noise and those that actually had a genuine fight or wanted yeah, to yeah. genuinely fight. And thankfully nine times out of ten, most people just yeah. want to make noise. They're not there. As soon as you, you sort of stand up within that situation or approach that situation yeah. with a bit of logic, uh, the fight stops. Um, so, you know, the same thing sort of happens online. There's, there's a bit of a dog piling. You're in the safety of your own house. You've got your own sort of hang-ups and bullshit that's going on in your life that's probably making you an yeah. angry individual that can't see inside other people's enjoyment yeah. for something. Um, and you need to sort of pick it with others so yeah i've thought about this quite a lot as i was sitting there at two in the morning or three in the morning trying to hit kid fandom <laughs> deadlines and then having someone in mind saying like you know this i i hate this because it exists you know <laughs> like yeah. well you you you, you don't have yeah. to read it it's i'm not uh, yeah. kicking in your door at your house it in your hands for kids and and thankfully there was a lot of kids that liked it and that's you all know, that matters it was i guess that's all that matters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm pleased with that. And, you know, you get paid. And so that's, that's what really <laughs> matters. <laughs> I want to actually now start asking you some questions about processes because you've done do so many so many varied projects in the last 10 years. What I wanted to ask is because you have uh, worked for King Features. Oh, King Features yeah. and yeah yeah they approached you by way of the work you were doing with was it with gestalt or milk shadow gestalt i was obviously i was doing soldier legacy you know little bits and pieces along the way i was doing the elridge kid uh graphic novel with right. gestalt and then chris pitched his um uh, phantom by gaslight idea to um uh, through with my name attached and some of my work i'd just done a um portfolio like a sketchbook of, of work which included that Elridge kid and, and soldier legacy stuff and uh, they had a they had pitched uh, through had pitched an idea of doing a kid phantom series but didn't have an artist attached and they thought that I'd be appropriate for that based on my work so didn't get the the gaslight gig that was uh, Jason Polos who, oh, okay. who Glenn had in mind yep. for the series. And I ended up um, doing the uh, uh, the kid Phantom stuff. So basically, it was just go and draw Phantom as a kid, and then um, and then saw me a month later at Oz Comic Con in Sydney, and, and I met Glenn in person for the first time, and he handed me the uh, the plot synopsis of the what was intended by the series of the original writer who was attached. So it was at that point that you went. Did you have to refine? The, the the initial portfolio drawings or, or designs or how did that how did it go from there? The only thing I had to change because I was scribbling this stuff while I was sort of staying in downtown San Diego at the time because we were flying I was getting on a plane to go to, to Comic Con mm -hmm. that year, so I was just sitting up at night drawing these little phantom drawings and inking Elridge Kid pages and uh, 
while I was at the show, I went, I walked past uh, Hermes Press in the States. They've got the Phantom comic license at the moment, and they're doing these sort of prestige hardcover reprints of everything. Oh, wow. The 1930s right through. So I think they're up to like volume 22 of the Daily Strip right now. Jesus. Which is like only just at the early years into Cy Barry's run in the 1960s. So they've still got like three or four decades to cover of comic my lord i wasn't sure what the take of 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 like young kit walker would be so i drew this one little drawing where he was uh he was in like a little look like tom taylor's cap you know yeah. uh, you know that sort of thing <laughs> a little, little street action cap with um shadow cast across his eyes because i thought well he's not wearing sunnies he's only a kid and i knew the rules of like you couldn't see the phantom's eyes you know the old jungle saying um, so like having never seen the original childhood of the Phantom strips, I had no idea what he would look like. So I just uh, shaded his eyes. But but the the mandate was, if we took the character from like the 1930s as an adult and then drove it back as a kid, he'd be running around in the 1910s, yeah. like World yeah. War One era. Maybe it's it's a little bit um, bit too much of a distance or a gap in time. So they picked the um, 1960s as a possible area of let's kick off his childhood around okay. this era so at least we can have colour and fun, fun and games. So that was the only sort of change. But everything else, um, I had like – I only had one image. I had I had the brief, which was a one-page brief, talking about um, the gap in the story in a, that Glenn had yep. identified that we never really saw what happened to young Kit since he was a kid all the way through to when he was a teen uh, before he becomes mm -hmm. a phantom. So he identified that little gap in time as here's, here's where we could tell stories. And uh, there was one, like, pitch material image which was uh, really nicely illustrated, but he kind of looked like um, – he just looked like a, a small like, – like did you ever see that Russian kid years ago that parents like gave him like growth hormones and, 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 and he like lifted oh, weights? He was yeah, only like yeah, a little yeah, – yeah, yeah. like The kid was massive ripped. Massive little body. He was – yeah, yeah. He was ripped and big. He kind of looked like that. He kind of looked like a small bodybuilder with a, like a large head. And and even though that that my my design kind of altered slightly over the course of drawing the character, I wanted him to look like a, a kid, like a fit young kid rather than a small man. <laughs> Fair uh, that was the only change. I made him like fairly lanky, you know, big hands, like the the big feet style of cartooning, I guess. You know, with the idea that like when you have like a a, a giant dog as a puppy, it's usually like tiny, but it has massive hands. Mm -hmm. So, like, I didn't want him to look perfect out of the box sort of character. Like, what's the point of drawing him as a kid um, when you want him to have, like, you know, lessons and morals that he learns and, and things to overcome in the story to then become the character he's supposed to be? So I tried to make him look a bit dorky and a little bit gangly, which, you know, I caught flack for, but... That was going to be my that was going to be my next question was how did you get any pushback from uh, Fru and King Features about that? Never from Fru, never from King Features. Apart from I guess the fact that they've got a current regime in King Features, who I'm guessing uh, from the sounds of things either want to do their own thing with the character or 
whatever whatever they're doing, um, it's been a while since we've been allowed to release the last issue. I don't know what's happening with that, and I don't know what's happening with um, stuff beyond this yeah, right, right now. It could be licensing issues. It could be things by choice. It's interesting. I was listening to an interview done by another podcast recently where they were listening. Uh, they interviewed the editor, and um, she's lovely. I've, I've, I've only touched base with her once or twice based on that, um, the Vietnam stuff. But in relation to Kid Phantom, it was quite evident that there was something behind the scenes I wasn't aware of by what she wasn't saying. Right. Which was kind of missed by the interviewers at the time, but it was loud and clear to us that maybe they're, they're thinking of something else. Apparently, from what I hear, like it, it was doing very well in terms of sales for what it was mm-hmm. because – you know, I could make the best party in the world, but if I don't send any invites out, no one's coming. Yep, yep, so yep. That's, that's the problem with it, especially being a news agent comic in, in Australia in 2020, you know, or 2021. It's, it's no, if no one knows it's there, you know, you're never going to see it. So advertising is always that yeah. issue. And, and it was the. And, the, and there's also the, you know, the mere fact that there's so much other, there's so much other stuff out there. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 it's the the probably it's the most expensive thing they've got to produce because you can't rely on reprints. It's like you got to pay the writer, you got to pay the artist. You know, you you're putting together this book that's in color. You know, there's all sorts of um, overheads that you're dealing with. The the distrib- distribution is um is sort of arbitrary. You know, if you have like two news agents side by side, one sells out, the other one sells nothing. You know, next month they still send both stores the same right. amount as opposed to maybe pushing some of the stock to the stores that actually sell out. So, but yeah, so the only pushback I ever sort of got was like maybe a, a handful of the hardcore sort of OG um, Phantom heads who, you know, they've been reading a Phantom since the 50s. They've got an idea of what the character should be, and the mere fact that this exists makes them furious. So, <laughs> Like, they had a couple of things here and there, and some people that again, you've got one artist that's worked on it for 30 years, and, and God bless Sir Barry. Like, you know, I, I'm a fan of his work too, but that that he's the pedestal for phantom art. So, if it doesn't look like that, yeah. then it's um, one quote I heard the other day horrible dog shit. So, it's Jesus. like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I have to have thick skin, and I don't always have thick skin. So it's not been a few days and a bit of separation and a bit of like, well, this, you know, you, you, what's who, that? Old who saying? knew Phantom um, fans are assholes? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I shouldn't say. You know, I'm not saying that. I, I am. I, I've had a lot of good support. Oh wow. I've had a lot of great support from the Phantom uh, reading community, especially those with kids who who get what we're trying to do with it or what we were trying to do with it, and that was get the kids involved with the character, you know, because the the readership is slowly going to die out in that sense. So um, by and large, 98 to 99% of the the fan base that I've come across have, have had kind things to say about it. And for those that didn't like it, most of them have, have not in, like they haven't engaged. There's only ever like maybe a handful of people that are spoiling it for everybody else <laughs> Always. by engaging. Always. Always you know, it's the and it's the internet too. You know, when you think that the the average age of, of those using certain social media platforms is 
far beyond the readership of the actual title. So you're never going to hear like a six-year-old chime in and say, oh, I love this or whatever on, on yeah. Facebook. You're only going to hear like the 45 or 50-year-old guy that looks at it and goes, what is this shit? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm like, well, as, I, as I've always stated, they're not, they're not burning the originals once they make this, you know. It, it's, it is what it is, but... No, I, I do appreciate those readers that did dig what we were trying to well, do. Well, I imagine just just purely from the standpoint of longevity, you know, as as you've stated, is some of the, those old crew then they're, they're not going to be around forever, and that means that the you know, the less people buy fan, the less people are going to give a shit, and then all the money that uh, the, all these companies have put into the Phantom over you know a hundred you know almost a, a a century, or if not a century, you know. They're the ones going to lose out, and I, I, I am genuinely still to this day surprised at the that the Phantom still sells, that people still buy it, people still read it. I'm, uh, well, yeah, like it's a really difficult audience to manage as a whole because you have those that want something new, you have those that love the old stuff as well as the new stuff, and then you have you know good sales on the reprints of the same material that has already come out previously. So it's a really hard. As a, as, a, as a business to make decisions and of what we're going to publish and print, I don't think you're ever going to please everybody. So you have to kind of make a decision on who, who you know, who, who are we pleasing the most with the products that we can put out. And a lot of it is always going to be guesswork because even those, um, you know, even that the hardcore readership that have been following it for each issue, whenever those um, reprint issues come out and they get quite angry about them, you know they're still top sellers in a lot of cases because some of the either some of the older readership just enjoys seeing those stories again or you have people like me who haven't seen them before anyway so it's kind of fun to read those old stories even if they are edited and and some people get a bit upset if the facsimile editions of the old uh original way that they were released um People are upset that they're not like the extended editions that Jim Shepard sort of brought in the 80s and the 90s where he brought those stories back. They are better and well-produced product, don't get me wrong. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to even read those. It's, it's like the, the difference of watching a director's cut of a movie or yeah. the original theatrical. You know? Like for me, I don't mind. It's a fun story either way. And sometimes – those newspaper stories read in long form as a comic book can be a little bit of a strange reading experience yeah. anyway. So it's not to get something trimmed down for a, a flow through. So I know myself when it, when it comes to fandom stories, like I have opinions on what I like and what I don't like because there's always this semi-looseness of how the character can be interpreted or how it can be written for, which is why if, and when I pitch Phantom stories, I don't write them as, as superhero stories because, you know, as I was saying last time, you know, tastes evolve yeah. and change. So I like to try other genres and other things. And that's the one thing I do like about the character is that he, he can be flexible in one way or another. And it's just a, a shame that we don't get to tell those more of those old, old, uh, of those all ages stories, which can help lead the kids into the older material anyway for those that want to investigate. It's like you and I was Spider-Man, yeah. like I was saying, when I was a kid, I didn't get the Steve Ditko stuff, didn't get Kirby until I was a little bit older, and then I go back and 
reinvestigate and get my head blown off when I read those old <laughs> Fantastic Four stuff. So, yeah. yeah no. uh, speaking uh, speaking of different facets of of uh, one character, uh, when when you're developing your own projects, what what's, what does that process involve for you? That's a good question. I used to laugh. Um, I listened to Norm Macdonald sometimes when I was working and there was a joke that they'd always get the guy, his psychic, to ask the person, where do you get your ideas from? Uh, which I always thought was funny, but at the same time it's appropriate because everybody is different in what inspires them. And I guess for me, sometimes for me it's just whether it's a documentary or a book or, or books that I've been reading um, that sort of sparks the interest in wanting to draw something on that subject. You know, in some cases it might be, you, you know, you start to investigate from there once you sort of see one thing and, and try to connect dots. I'm trying to think of like the current sort of creator-owned thing that I'm doing right now sort of came out of a, an exercise that I was doing with my art direction students. There was always a disconnect between what they do in the life drawing studio and what they do in the digital realm in the labs. So um, what I would do is sort of do an exercise that tries to incorporate, you know, multifaceted research and referencing. So I'd take them, obviously we draw the life model, we do life drawing, and then we go to the museum and we draw sketches of animals, you know, and, and uh, at the time there was also an exhibition up here of like the, the Mephisto tank and a World War One exhibition. So I was drawing a combination of that with uniforms and things. Uh, and then we take it back into the, the digital sphere and I say, all right, make me a creature, make me something out of these sketches and, and research and development and see what comes. So I... I did a demo in one of the classes and from that demo I sort of thought, oh, that would be kind of a funny story to pull from. I guess it's the Eastman and Laird sort of example there um, of like here's a dumb turtle with nunchucks and see what we can do. <laughs> so it was kind of like that but I also had a whole bunch of reference and research material that I'd gathered for a Phantom series which at that point then was uh, put on hiatus for a while over sort of uh, the last year or so because of COVID and that sort of thing. So um, I didn't want to waste that research. I had these creatures or a bunch of creatures. I also had a few concepts and things that I was doing as an audition to get on the deep. And from there, that kind of percolated those initial ideas of, of developing my mm -hmm. own concept. So which ended up revolving around um, shock horror, uh, uh, an old soldier. So <laughs> I guess it's, 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 you know, there's. I think there's a lot of stuff that comes up in Australian history that's not quite as explored in in modern sort of popular culture. That, or if it is explored, it's it's kind of like a straightforward narrative retelling. And I kind of like the idea of taking something that's real world and weaving it into a story of fiction without negatively impacting the events that take yeah. place in the real world, or at least um, disrespecting it. So it's not. Like, uh, say, Inglorious Bastards, where Hitler dies in a completely different yeah, yeah. manner, which you know, or, or like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you're sort of completely changing the narrative in that sense. So, I'd been doing it with Phantom, so I just started doing it by myself. But it, I guess it was something that bore out of that um, Soldier Legacy stuff, which I originally did like a decade or so ago. So, it all kind of comes full circle, yeah, right. I suppose. Yeah, right. So, I take it 
with your, particularly with your students, uh, okay. when when working traditionally versus digitally, like are, are you mm-hmm. are you a fan of either? Do you do you use them both equally? Yeah, absolutely. Is I the reason why I mean in the more recent years, like that soldier, oh, not that soldier, that Phantom uh, comic you mentioned from the uh, the Ledger annual that got the bronze. That was my first full digital comic. So I, um, I'd always colored digitally, but I'd done everything traditionally up until that point. So like a good half of Kid Phantom and three quarters of uh, Elridge Kid was done traditionally. And the reason why I went digitally was more about expediency than right. anything else. It gave, <laughs> gave me the ability to leave the office once in a while and still be able to hit deadlines and do some work and sort of be around family rather than be stuck at the desk uh, 24-7 because I found myself um, either on the computer um, colouring or or, um, on the drawing board drawing and inking. So there there had to be times where, you know, particularly when the real world impacts that I had to get out of here and not, not be in the desk. And at the very least, while I was sort of out and about or I was at uni between classes or whatever, I could still be colouring or, or, or inking or doing something. Like the last several pages of that Phantom book I did in the back of a car between Auckland and Wellington on a road. <laughs> Jesus. So you, you can um, – <laughs> I could just – you know, I can still at least feel like I'm part of the planet uh, <laughs> as opposed to locked away. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I – um, I don't have any preference one way or the other. I do remember sitting down with Nicola and I've still got the drawing on my iPad where she um, did a little head sketch of her character, Rowan, from um, mm-hmm. Black Magic, you know, and um, sort of seeing the benefit of stuff. But I know she's very anti-tech and I get that. Even my, <laughs> even Glenn is my boss. He, um, my current Wacom tablet that I've got in front of me here is like a, a boogie board sized tablet that, Glenn, Glenn had tried for a week and then tossed it across wow. the office and said, here, you take it, you you use it more. So uh, it's kind of funny because I had a little bamboo tablet <laughs> up until that point. So all of a sudden, I'm, you know, drawing, colouring, like, you know, just the arms uh, going all over the office to, to colour things. So I don't really have a preference one way or the other. I do find there is a versatility in the digital software that I appreciate mm-hmm. And then sometimes if I go back to traditional, um, you know, if I'm doing a commission or I decide every now and again if I do something traditional for a cover or something like that, I find myself double tapping the paper with my other hand, um, <laughs> expecting something to happen and it doesn't. So then you go back to that, all oh, right, that's right, we're in happy accidents world now, you know, and if there's any problems I can just white it out or, or whatever the case may be. So. I don't have a preference either way, but it is fun to be able to sit in the lounge room every now and again at work instead of being yeah, at a desk. Yeah, yeah, so. it's a it's a common thing, I guess. I'm hearing from a lot of people is that's the, the real issue behind behind comics these days is uh, the amount of hours you have to put behind a desk or you know even in a computer even a computer screen depending on the art style that you have. Yeah, and and for me too, I like I I. <laughs> I Gave myself a bad hip injury a couple of years ago from being cr- cramped in a desk and then standing up and or being cramped for so long and and being so focused on the work and not not getting up and 
and uh, enough, I suppose, that I eventually um, impinged and strained my hip flexor. You know, a combination of that, a little bit of genetics and I guess years of kicking people in <laughs> tournaments that's kind of because I basically I, I I spent a day that I remember the day I was uh, spent a day at the children's hospital drawing sketches of the kids and I was in a tiny little kids chair and then straight after the session I went to Muay Thai and did like pad sessions and felt my hip twinge so um, and then the next morning I couldn't walk oh, so geez. it's uh, been two years now trying to manage that so it's just a reminder of the 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 contrast of of mentally what I go through between wanting to get up and move around and having to be stuck and sitting at a desk and and now it's like you you're forced to um, balance that otherwise uh, you lose the ability to um, f- function. In that I, bet, sense. I, I get it. I get it. Working on your concepts and how you go between working on your own stuff versus working with mm-hmm. working with Fru, who you have to get two sign offs for everything well, the, that you the, do. The fun, the weird thing was though that even though that's the process, that's the process that I'm not evidently aware of because after after going through the first time around of of giving them you know roughs, then inks, then colors or whatever. In the end, for a while at least, I could just hand them a complete comic and then get paid and then wow. move on to the next thing, which was nice. And then and then editorial kind of changed recently. And even then when I did that first Nam story, um, but even the other ones, like I wasn't hearing anything from anybody, like uh, uh, which was nice. Like uh, the only change they gave me on that first story was there was two lines of dialogue that mentioned words that, you know, they. I was using terminology of the era, which could be misconstrued um, incorrectly today. So instead of like right. trudging through the jungle was the change I made from humping through the jungle, which is what the soldiers used to say. <laughs> Makes but sense. Obviously, has different connotations. <laughs> um, yeah. And the other one, yeah. And then the other one was about the idea of him being a spy. So someone calls him a spook. Which again is a, a ra- like a racial right. term in America that's um, can consider either, but but otherwise, um, I remember the publisher Dudley was passed on some good feedback of that story, which was nice. But everything else, like you know, was was very much a, a case of, yep, good, wow. thank you, see you later, sort of stuff, you know. You know, so that was that was okay. There's obviously stuff going on about, uh, uh, you know, when 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 it's been like a while since you hear from them after handing stuff in, that's yeah. when you know that there's something that's changed beyond your level of, of influence yeah. or, or your the work process. So, you know, again, it's like it's it's only a handful of people in that team producing, you know, 30, 40 books a year or whatever they're doing. And, and wow. You know, the merchandise and stuff like that. So you know that they, if they don't talk to you, that it's not a, anything yeah. personal. It's just that they're overworked themselves. So, um, which is why I, I had to do the the personal thing to kind of keep, you know, because I had this compulsive need to draw comics, and you keep working through from there. But it's very, I guess, it's very similar to doing the stuff with Gestalt for um, yeah. the TX magazine with their medical comics. You get a script, you. You send in your roughs, they approve it, 
you finish the job off, hand it in, they say, good work, here's your paycheck. And <laughs> Fair enough. Essentially. <laughs> yeah. And then every now and again you'll get something nice, but I've learned over time to not try to rely on niceties mm-hmm. in that sense because you'll never be satisfied. Uh, yeah. You've got to be satisfied yeah, yeah. somehow satisfied in the, in the you work. Do. Yeah, yeah. Th- that makes total sense. I suppose, you know, if you're con- constantly looking outward for a mm. justification of what you do and, and, you know, your worth, then that could be problematic in many, many well, ways. Well, yeah. It's, it's, and, um, and, and let's be honest, you know, typically it, these days, if you're doing something wrong, people will tell you, you know. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. We've been going for quite a while now, Paul. I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt you. Um but uh, so we're going to have to wrap it up. Oh, yeah. I do want to ask you quickly: what's what are you working on at the moment? Well, uh, um, I wrote a comic while I was uh, in lockdown. I think a lot of people probably did that too. I was uh, uh, my my kid, the kid phantom dried up. It was sort of finishing off. Um, I think King Features have some different ideas. I don't know what's happening, but yep. I'm I'm right in the middle of waiting for approvals for other stories. All my work kind of stopped at the start of COVID. Um, but I've been doing a lot of work for TX Mag uh, via Gestalt, uh, which is like a medical. They do a lot of medical comics to teach people about. Oh, wow, um, cool! Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. hepatitis. They like little fiction stories. So, you know, those on the side and, and getting some nice feedback from the editors there. I'm waiting on, as I said, I'm waiting on King Features for a number of different stories. One that my partner and I wrote, which is like a, I guess it's like a meat pie western. In the fence, sort of the, the utilizing some of the backstory of the uh, mm-hmm. the female equivalent of the Phantom. So I'm looking for that, hopefully getting approved. Plus the continuation of my Phantom in Vietnam series, which I'm really enjoying cool. researching and writing and drawing. Uh, hopefully I'll get a few more of those off off the ground because uh, the, there's been a long time between drinks. But my main thing is a a creator owned book, which is. Uh, uh, I just announced it on my my um, newsletter to a handful of people called um, uh, Flock. It's kind of a, an old um, soldier telling his story about his life in the war, but it's uh, it, it's based in Australian history, but it's also very quirky and and a bit left field, um, very weird. I don't really want to give the, the no 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 need to no need that's, but, uh, that's yeah it kind of it kind of trails around a guy and he was a uh, in, in communication so he's dealing with carrier pigeons during the war and Sweet. that kind of manifests into the 1960s the emu war the second emu war <laughs> harold Holth and um kfc so it's kind of a very strange uh, but fun story that i'm enjoying because uh it's just for me i'll probably kickstart it i might pitch it but I don't know where. Uh, who knows? There's there's plenty of places. Well, now well, there's a, there's well, I mean, if you, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see, we'll see. I'll put I'll put I'll put something together. Send a few emails out. Awesome. But it ain't going to stop me from getting it out there anyway. So I'm going to preview book at Oz Comic Con Brisbane if that goes ahead. Uh, I got I got the invite recently. So if 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 the world doesn't explode. We'll, <laughs> I'll put a preview book out and then kickstart it soon after. So. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. All right, mate. Well, uh, Paul, thank you very much once again. No and speak soon. No All right. Thanks heaps, man. Take care. Talk soon. Stay safe. Cheers, brother. See you, bud. Bye now. <laughs> See you, mate. Bye. 
That's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it would be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, for more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And until next time, uh, read the comics you enjoy and enjoy the comics you read. Thanks very much. And uh, see you later. Credits. Written, produced, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Editing and audio production. Matthew Jones. Samuel Brown. Sean O'Reilly. Additional editing. Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation. Archie Cuthbertson. Dan Moore. Credits announcer. Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham vs. Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.